Uh, let me pray and ask God to be our teacher. Uh, God, as we relate that question to your word, you know, as we talk today about people in our lives that play a critical role, I pray that you would show us what needs to happen in our lives to make sure that those vital relationships are, you know, are occurring. And we're going we're gonna to listen to your word as it's taught, God, and ask you to open our hearts, our ears, to hear what you have to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Sue and I were in Portland uh, about a month or so ago. We were hanging out, loving on our grandkids. And one of our fun activities is we went to this hands-on children's museum. And for several hours while we were there, we moved from exhibit to exhibit, and we, we made bubbles, and we built things in another exhibit with Legos, and we made static electricity go through our hair, those of us who have hair. <laughs> but there, there was one exhibit that was meant to teach teamwork. So, so there, were, there were about uh, 20 big spongy building blocks, and you had to put them together to build this arch, and the arch was, was about seven or eight feet high. So nobody could do it on their own. There had to be one person on one base and one person at the other base of the arch, and you're building blocks as people are handing you the blocks and you're holding them in place, and then there had to be another person putting the final blocks in place. And again, this was meant to be a group activity, uh, something that taught teamwork. My, my almost four-year-old granddaughter, Ruby, she got the hang of this. Her brother, Cal, two years old. You, you know, if you're a two-year-old boy and you see blocks being built, it's to knock them down, right? So he never qu quite got the hang of the team activity thing. But today we're going to talk about an important activity that requires teamwork. It requires group participation. It's something we can't do on our own. It's called restoration. Uh, we're actually in the third week of a four-part restoration series. We have been studying what the Bible says about how God makes us into the people he wants us to be. How God removes old stuff from our lives that doesn't really work. Old behaviors, habits, attitudes, values, priorities, and how he replaces that with new stuff. This is what the Bible calls restoration. Now, the, the first installment in this series was on Easter weekend. We talked about resurrection power, that only God, only God can empower us to make these necessary changes, transformations in our lives. Second weekend of the series, last weekend, we talked about relentless repentance, how God calls us on a daily basis to identify those things in our lives that need to be fixed. Okay, that's what repentance is all about. Today, our focus is on vital relationships, vital relationships. The restoration that God wants to do in your life, in my life, requires participation with other people. Vital relationships, the word vital means essential, indispensable, top priority. We can't become all that God wants us to be on our own. It's going to take engagement with other people to pull off this restoration. So what does the engagement look like? Well, today we're, we're going to consider four critical relational activities. If you haven't pulled your outline from your program yet or called it up on your phone or your iPad, I encourage you to do that now. Four activities, relational activities that contribute to our spiritual growth, our restoration. Here's number one, restitution. Restitution, And I want you to turn with me to the first book of your New Testament, the book of Matthew. I couldn't find all four activities that we're considering today in the same Bible passage, so we're going to look at four different 
Bible passages. Keep your uh, index finger licked as you turn pages here. Matthew chapter 5 is where we begin. This is the beginning of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to read a couple of verses in which Jesus warns us against anger. But, but here's the interesting twist. He, he doesn't speak to us about what to do with our anger toward other people. He addresses the issue of what we're to do with other people's anger toward us. You know, what do we do when people are honked off at us, and in many cases for good reason? Okay, what, what, what do we do? How do we handle that? So uh, pick it up, Matthew chapter 5 down at verse uh, 23. Jesus says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Okay, stop right there. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, you, Jesus, for giving us this sermon on the mount. I love the picture that's painted here. Okay, you're off to the temple. You're bringing God a gift, a sacrifice, uh, a, a, a sacrificial animal. And, you know, what could be more important than this? What could be more spiritual? What could be more God-honoring? But in the course of doing it, God brings somebody to mind who's upset with you. They've got a complaint against you. And evidently, it's a legitimate complaint, okay? It's not just a small incidental matter. It's it's somewhat serious. You know, maybe they're angry with you because you owe them some money. You haven't repaid them. Or maybe they're angry at you because, you know, you've gossiped about them behind their back. Or you you haven't fulfilled some responsibility. You promised to do something and you haven't followed through on your word. Or you've broken trust. You've betrayed trust in in some way. Or you've damaged some other good, some other property. Okay, they've got a complaint against you. God brings them to mind while you're offering your gift. And so you kind of do one of these, okay, Lord, I get it. I'll take care of this when I'm done. I'll get something on the calendar, and God says, no, no, right now. I want you to address, leave your gift at the altar, go reconcile with this person, then you can come back and offer your gift. This is restitution, fixing broken relationships with other people, people whom we've alienated because of our wrongdoing. And, and, and this is a biblical principle that doesn't just pop up in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You will find rest, restitution throughout Scripture. In fact, if you've been following Christ Community Church's daily Bible reading schedule, and we've been in the, the book of Numbers, and I know Numbers, the opening chapters are hard to get life lessons out of, right? I was so proud of my men's group, though, this past week. week they came prepared. They found principles and personal applications out of the opening chapters of Numbers. Well, Numbers chapter 5 talks about restitution, the very thing we're talking about right now. L- listen to these verses. Numbers 5, verses 5 to 7. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty. And must confess the sin they've committed. They must make full restitution. Restitution for the wrong they've done. Add a fifth of the value to it. And give it all to the person they have wronged. Restitution. Restitution. This is one of those biblical principles that uh, AA tapped into. When they were putting together their 12-step recovery program. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is in the business of helping people break bad habits in their lives and develop healthy habits. And so each week of our restoration series, I've been pointing out the AA steps 
that correspond to the biblical principle that we're considering that week. So week one, when we talked about resurrection power, we looked at AA's steps one, two, and three that talk about our need for a higher power if we're going to break bad habits. Okay, week two, when we talked about relentless repentance, we looked at AA's steps four, five, six, and seven that point to the need we have to daily take an inventory of our lives to see what's wrong and needs to be fixed. Well, today as we study vital relationships, beginning with the importance of restitution, let me read to you AA's step eight and step nine. So step eight goes like this. We make a list of all persons we have harmed and we become willing to make amends to them all. Step nine, we make direct amends to such people whenever possible. See, this is restitution. As we focus on the vital relationships that God uses to shape our lives, we've got to understand that fixing broken relationships is where God wants us to begin. Fixing broken relationships is where God wants us to begin. We can't become more and more and more like Jesus, which is what restoration is all about, until we've been reconciled with the people whom we've alienated because of our wrongdoing. Get it? Good. Now, there, there are two aspects of making restitution that I want to mention here. You want to jot these down in your notes. The first is simply a sincere apology. A sincere apology. Making restitution requires a sincere apology. As I was uh, ruminating on that this past week, putting together the sermon, I decided to Google phony apologies to see if I'd come up with anything. And I was not disappointed. There are all sorts of websites about phony apologies, especially in the news media. So I'll give you one, one example of that. A woman named Ingrid Newkirk. Ingrid is the head of an animal rights organization, and her organization got in trouble recently uh, because they were running a, a national ad campaign, and in this ad campaign, they compared cruelty to animals, listen to this, cruelty to animals to the Jewish Holocaust. How many of you know that's probably not a really good comparison to make? So, you know, is it wrong to do Cruel things to animals, of course, but it's a bit over the top to compare it to the extermination of six million Jews, right, during the Second World War. So there was an outrage, and Ingrid felt the need to apologize, so she said, I'm sorry. And if she had stopped there, it, it maybe would have been okay, but she said, uh, I'm sorry. And then she, she added, she said, but a lot of the Jewish people I know, they're fine with the ad. Is that an apology? Sounds to me more like, you know, and if you were offended by this, I'm sorry you're such a knucklehead because normal people, normal Jewish people aren't offended by this. So that, that was not an apology. That was not an apology. A genuine apology doesn't cast blame on the other person. Keep that in mind when you go to apologize. It's not to say this is what I did wrong and of course what you did was... <laughs> And a genuine apology is simple. There's not a whole lot of explaining and justifying. It's just, I was wrong. It's specific. It's, here's what I did that was wrong. Here's what I did that was wrong. And it, it doesn't expect anything back. Okay, if you're going thinking you're going to say, I'm sorry, and then they're going to say, oh, that's okay, I'm sorry too, then you're going to be sorely disappointed if they don't say that. So you expect nothing, nothing back. 
And so, sometimes the, the apology won't be accepted. But we still need to do what we need to do to make restitution. Restitution. The apology is still our responsibility. So one aspect of restitution is a sincere apology. A second aspect is any possible repayment. Any possible repayment. You know the story of, of uh, Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19? Uh, Jesus is passing through the hometown of Zacchaeus one day, the city of Jericho. Zacchaeus is hope, hoping to get a glimpse of Jesus, but he's a short little guy, and he's afraid he's not going to be able to see over the crowd, so he climbs a tree and he waits in the lower branches. And Jesus comes by, surrounded by a crowd of people, and he stops underneath the tree, and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm going to your house for dinner. So Jesus just invites himself over. And this encounter with Jesus is the beginning of God's restoration in Zacchaeus's life. And the first act of restoration is restitution. Resti Zacchaeus has been a money-grubbing businessman all his life. Okay, he's been a tax collector. He's cheated people out of money. He's never given money generously away. Why would you give money away? But now he meets Christ. He surrenders his life to Christ, and the restoration begins. So he knows he's got to make restitution. And he stands up at the dinner table and in front of Jesus and others. He says, anybody I've cheated, I'm going to repay what I owe them four times. And I'm going to give half my goods, my possessions, away to the poor. Okay, now you know that God is up to restoration in Zacchaeus' life because he's willing to make restitution. Friends, this is where restoration begins with us. If there are people in our lives whom we've offended because of our wrongdoing, the first vital relationship is to get it right with these people, to offer a sincere apology, to make any repayment possible. Now, let me quickly clarify here. Not all repayments are in the form of money. There, there may be other things we owe people, so to speak. Uh, we may need to repay them in terms of a restored rep reputation if we stole their reputation by gossip. You know, repayment may involve going to the people that we spread this rumor about and correcting the negative impression we left. That's repayment. Repayment may be rebuilding trust okay if we have if we have bankrupt the trust relationship because we haven't followed through on promises then then repayment may involve doing whatever is necessary to rebuild trust and not whining you know saying you don't trust me anymore well no they don't trust you because you broke their trust and now repayment involves you know rebuilding that trust Re repayment may be with your, with your mom and dad. Repayment may be honoring them as Scripture calls us to honor our parents. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, whether you're 16 or you're 36 or 56 years old, honoring your parents. And if there's a broken relationship there because you haven't honored them, then that's where repayment begins. See how this works? There, there, there are many forms of repayment. And sometimes repayment is not possible. Sometimes there, there's nothing we can do to repay. However, whenever we can think of a way in which to repay the person we've wronged, then our apology is going to have greater credibility. When, when we say, I'm sorry, and we back it up with hard evidence of a changed heart, repayment, it's going to make our apology that much more credible.
So the first vital relationship as God works to restore us is restitution. Uh, number two, second activity, accountability. Accountability. Now we're going to turn to another Bible passage toward the end of your New Testament in the book of James. Okay, the book of James. And as you're turning and you're finding James in your table of contents, let me, let me do a quick survey across our four campuses. And if you're watching online, you could participate and raise your hand if this applies to you. How many of you come from a Roman Catholic background? Wow, a lot of you. How many of you, part two of the question, how many of you went to confession on a regular basis, semi-regular basis? Okay, number of you. Now, un unfortunately, those of us who grew up in Roman Catholic backgrounds, we were taught that, you know, when you confess your sin, it has to be to a priest. It ha has to be to a member of the clergy, a qualified spiritual leader. But the Bible doesn't teach that. You know, the, the, the Bible teaches that we can confess our sins directly to Jesus, that Jesus is the only intermediary we need between us and God. And some of you, when you learn that for the first time, it was liberating. You know, I, I don't have to confess my sins to a priest and a confessional. I could do it directly to Jesus. Great. However, I don't want you to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I, th I think I may have just mixed my metaphors here. I've gone from priests and confessionals to babies and bathwater. But s stick with me here. The Bible does teach that sometimes it's beneficial for us to openly confess our sins to another Christ follower. Not necessarily a priest, but to confess to another Christ follower and then to have that person pray for us. Now please understand, the forgiveness still comes from Jesus, doesn't come from that other person. But there's value about being open about our sins with somebody else. Now if your Bible is open to James chapter 5, let me read verse 16 to you. It says, therefore confess your sins to, to who? Say it each other. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Confess your sins to each other. Not only that, James goes on to say a couple of verse, verses later, it's really good if you have people in your life who are willing to get in your face when you've done wrong and pull you back onto God's path. Drop, drop down to verse 19. He says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way, whoever gets in their face, in other words, will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. See, we need people to whom we are accountable. We need people who will pull us back to God's path when we wandered away from it. So th this is another thing that, that AA does right. You know, AA insists that, you know, the people who want to say no to drunkenness and yes to sobriety, that they attend regular meetings with other recovering alcoholics who will hold them accountable. I, I just uh, finished this great book about two middle-aged brothers who built a covered wagon and drove it across the Oregon Trail, 2,000 miles of Oregon Trail. True story. Happened just a couple of years ago. So uh, these two brothers, they built the wagon. The Oregon Trail starts in Missouri. It goes all the way to Oregon, which is why it's called the Oregon Trail. Uh, back in the 1800s, the 
15 years before the Civil War, over 400,000 pioneers crossed the Oregon Trail. Uh, many scholars consider it to be the, 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 the largest single land migration in history. So these two brothers, two guys named Rinker and Nick, they, they build this wagon and they're driving it across the Oregon Trail and they're stopping along the way. They're meeting people in small towns. You know, their, their typical MO is they'll, you know, they'll drive all day and then they'll stop outside a small town and park their wagon where they're going to sleep for the night and then they walked into town. Now, Rinker went into town you know, to get groceries and to check out the uh, local laundromat. But Nick went into town, listen to this, to find the local AA meeting. See, across on the, Appala uh, on the Oregon Trail, he's looking for an AA meeting because he's a recovering alcoholic and he knows the importance of accountability. Recovering alcoholics know the importance of accountability. They also know when they're getting bull from other recovering alcoholics. Bull, by the way, is short for bull-loney. Okay. Just, yeah. You know, don't try to look better than you are to a recovering alcoholic because they will see right through you. You know, they're, 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 not, they're not impressed with the airbrushed image you present of yourself. We live in a social media culture that encourages us to put our best foot forward. So we post updates on Facebook and we post pictures on Instagram that make us look like we're living the ideal got-it-all-together lives. So, for example, if you're, if you're a parent of young children, we've seen your pics on Instagram, okay? Those pics of you and your family at Disney World. The, the pics of you coaching your son's little league team. But, but you've not posted any pictures of the times when you've lost it with your kids. And you've been screaming bloody mad at them. You didn't post any pictures of you sitting at your desk and working too late instead of being home for dinner. And reading the Bible around the, the dinner table with your kids. All we know is the ideal you. But who knows the real you? Who knows the real you? To whom are you confessing your sinful struggles and then asking them to pray for you? Who's getting in your face in those areas of your life that, that are at odds with God's word? Are you in a community group? And if you're in a community group, is this happening in your community group? Now, have you checked out Tuesday care night? I mean, if, if your struggle is with grief or addiction or uh, bitterness over divorce... Have you checked out Care Night? You know, if you're a middle school student, are you coming to Genesis or a house school student? Are you a high school student? Are you in a house group? You know, where, where there are people who are going to hold your feet to the fire to make sure that you're walking with God. Do you have an accountability partner with whom you schedule regular meetings? The, these are vital relationships. And don't ever think you're beyond accountability. You know, don't think that, well, I'm spiritually mature, I don't need this now. Okay, the head honcho of the early church, a guy named Peter, you know, considered to be the most respected Christian leader among Christ followers of the day. On one occasion in the New Testament, we, we read of Peter being a bit hypocritical, and Paul gets in his face. Peter's saying one thing and he's doing another thing. And so the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 11, I opposed Peter to his face because he was wrong. Wow. 
If we want God to work his restoration in our lives, we're going to need some accountability relationships. Let me tell you, tell you what we don't need. We don't need any more enablers in our lives. This is some more AA jargon. An enabler is a person who just condones whatever we do and allows us to continue to get away with our bad behavior. Now, we like enablers because they make us feel good about ourselves, but we don't need enablers. We need accountability partners. Vital relationships. If you want God to work restoration in your life to make you more and more like Jesus, it begins with restitution, fixing broken relationships. It continues with accountability. There are people in your life. You've made yourself accessible to them. They could get in your face. They can address issues that need to be worked on. Number three. Third activity, encouragement. Encouragement. We're going to go to another Bible text. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Now, if you've been in James, Hebrews is one book to the left, okay? It's just one book before James. Hebrews chapter 3. The New Testament epistle, the letter of Hebrews, was written to a group of Christ followers who came from a Jewish background. So they really knew their Old Testament history. You know, they love those stories of great men and women of faith. But the author of Hebrews also reminded them of Old Testament stories, times when God's people did stupid, disobedient, rebellious, sinful things. That's the background to Hebrews chapter 3. Okay, now the chapter begins with a reference to Moses, one of Israel's greatest leaders. He's the guy who delivered God's people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He's a dude who put his staff over the Red Sea and the waters miraculously parted and everybody walked through on dry ground. He's the guy who went to the top of Mount Sinai, spent 40 days in the presence of God Almighty and came down with the Ten Commandments. And yet in spite of all these wonderful experiences of God's intervention under the leadership of Moses, Hebrews 3 tells us that these people wandered away from God. They wandered away from God. When it came time for them to enter the promised land, they got scared of potential enemies, and they refused to believe that God would protect them. God said, go, 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 and they said, no, no, no. And so God let them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The writer of Hebrews reminds his readers of this history, this bad history, and then he turns it into a life lesson. So let me read the life lesson to you, beginning at verse 12. He says, So see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The writer of Hebrews points out that sin has a way of very, very, very subtly hardening our hearts. Happened to these Old Testament believers who were part of God's people, who had a great leader in Moses who saw God do all sorts of miracles. It can happen to you even if you're going to a great church with a great pastor. And you've seen God do all sorts of wonderful things in your life. Your heart can become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
You know, we let a little pattern of disobedience develop in our lives. It may not seem like a big thing at the time, but it eventually causes us to turn away from a vibrant relationship with God. It happens. So what does the writer of Hebrews say? Look at the opening line of verse 13. What is the antidote to sin hardening our hearts? Look at it. Encouragement. If we want to keep sin from hardening our hearts toward God, we've got to surround ourselves with people who will daily encourage us in a life of faith and obedience. Let, let, let me give you an example of somebody like that. A couple of weeks ago, I went to see my dentist. He's a good guy. He's a buddy of mine. He's been coming to Christ Community Church for a number of years. In fact, he's gone on numerous GO, go teams. He's fixed people's teeth in Haiti and Bangladesh and Sierra Leone. He's trained lay people to be dentists Okay, in, the, in those countries as part of our GO team work. Fabulous guy. So uh, I broke a crown in the back of my mouth. I had to, had to have it fixed. So uh, I, I'm sitting in his dentist chair. Now, I arrived with a question, which is always a good thing to do with a dentist, because if you don't ask him a question first, they'll ask, ask you a question when they got all that stuff in your mouth. And so you're going, ah. So I asked him, I said, hey, how's your family doing? And he told me the coolest story. He's got, he's got a couple of grown boys, 33, 31, some grandkids, and they live nearby. And every morning... These guys, the two, two sons and dad, they read the same Bible passage together and then they text each other what they got out of the Bible for their lives that day. And I thought, yeah, how cool is that? You know, that the dad has taken the time to instigate this with his sons. You know, how hard, how difficult it's going to be for those sons to wander away from God when they know their dad's going to be talking Bible with them every day. Every day. See, that's daily encouragement. And he's not only encouraging them, but his example is encouraging me to be the dad I should be when I hear a story like that. See, this is, this is what we need people in our lives who are encouraging us by their example and by their words to follow wholeheartedly after Christ who will cheer us on in our walk with Christ because sometimes restoration is three steps forward, two steps back and we feel like we failed God and we're a jerk and we need someone to say, you are a jerk, but you're less of a jerk than you were a year ago, you know? We, we, need, we need encouragers and in addition to this sort of personalized encouragement, we also need the general encouragement that comes from hanging out with fellow Christ followers in a large group. You know, I'm, I'm talking about the encouragement we get as we participate in weekend worship services and as we participate in community group gatherings and as we participate in Second Saturdays Serve the Needy opportunities that you heard described in the video today. We, we, we need what we're doing right now, friends. This is encouragement across four campuses. You know, the, the sort of group you're participating in right now offers you the kind of encouragement that an AA group can't offer a recovering alcoholic. You know, sometimes my recovering alcoholic friends tell me that AA, their group, is their church. And I say, no, 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 no. There are things that the church can do. I'm sorry, your recovery group can't do. You know, one of the things that is done when the group comes together of Christ followers is we affirm our new identity in Christ. 
Now, if I go to an AA meeting, you know, I open with, hello, my name is Jim, and I am what? An alcoholic. You've heard that. But I'll tell you, when I come to church or I get together with my small group, what's ringing in my ears is, hello, I'm Jim, and I'm beloved by God. I'm Jim, and I've been redeemed from death and hell by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. I am Jim, and God has given me a mission in this life to extend the reign of King Jesus to my friends, the people I work with, my community around the world. See, I, I like the ring of that affirmation, don't you? You know, I, I like that better than reminding myself of my failed past. Because that affirmation encourages my restoration. And when I'm gathering with a large group of Christ followers, this is something else that happens. They, they, they direct my attention to God. See, that's what's happening in this service. We're getting recalibrated. We come from a busy week and we're focusing for a few moments here on God. Uh, Dr. Ed Welch, a Christian counselor and wonderful author, he's written a book about addictions that I found helpful as I prepared for this series. And of course, we're all addicted to sin, right? You recognize we're all addicts. We're all addicted to sin. So listen to what he says about addictions. Because it applies to every one of us. He says, addictions are ultimately a disorder of worship. A disorder of worship. We worship our desires over God. That's sin. We worship our desires over God. We desire the things of earth more than the one who rules it. This being so, okay, because this is the case, worship is the true deepest need for addicts as it is for all people. What's our deepest need? Dr. Ed Welch says, legitimate worship. Legitimate. People are born worshipers. We're all going to worship something. If you're a recovering alcoholic, the past may be that you worshiped booze, but every one of us, we can worship our jobs, our kids, our house, our vacation getaways, our golf game, shopping, the Cubs, whatever. And unfortunately, the things that we're prone to worship other than God can't give our lives the real meaning or joy that we crave. And worse than that, friends, the things that we worship other than God often lead us into patterns of behavior that undermine our relationship with God. So when we gather, when we gather with other Christ followers and we worship together the one true living God and we worship in song and we worship in the teaching of his word and we worship in the taking of communion, our lives are recalibrated. We turn away from the things that we were tempted to worship the rest of the week and we're renewed in our desire to worship the one true living God who alone is worthy of worship. And that spells restoration. That spells restoration. Now, a quick aside here. Okay, I, I feel like I just need to say this every once in a while. The first part of our service every week at Christ Community Church, when, when we do some singing and whatever, that's not just a warm-up act to the real stuff, the preaching of the Bible. It's critically important. And that's why I plead with you to get here on time so you don't miss any of it. Aim to get here early so when the worship begins, you don't miss it. Today, our worship consisted of tracking through the gospel, the four acts of the gospel. So if you walked in in the middle of it, you missed half the gospel. 
Now, the, the reason I say this, I, I want you to know how much time and effort. We spend hours planning that first part of every service, the worship part. And it's not just the band that puts together a few good songs. It's your teaching pastors. Pastor Clayton and I are working with that team, putting together meaningful worship because we want you to be encouraged by it. So this is not a scold like you latecomers, you know, bad people here. This, this is a please for your sake. For your sake, get here on time and drink up every minute of worship you can get. You get it? Good. Thank you. Wait, am I okay with you now, having said that? All right. Okay. So, one final activity, group activity. Okay, vital relationships play an essential role in our restoration. We don't grow in Christ-likeness on our own. It requires group activities like restitution, accountability, uh, encouragement individually and group-wise. And here's a fourth activity. It requires serving. Restoration requires serving. Now, go to one last passage with me. This is Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at one verse. And it's a verse, when I read it to you, you may think initially, well, what does this verse have to do with me? So let me give you some context to Ephesians 4. The, the Apostle Paul is describing the Christian life here with the metaphor of getting dressed. Okay, the Christian life's like getting dressed. There are certain clothes you want to take off and other clothes you want to put on. So imagine this, if you would, okay? You're out working in your backyard. You're doing some gardening, some mowing of the lawn, whatever. So you got on grubby jeans and a raggy T-shirt, and suddenly you look at your watch and you realize, I'm supposed to be at a wedding in an hour. And so you race inside and you strip off the grubby clothes and you take a shower and you put on some of your finery, your wedding clothes. Go to wedding clothes. Okay, none of us put the grubby clothes back on, right? Right? Right. Okay. So in Ephesians 4, Paul gives a bunch of examples of some old clothes behaviors that Christ followers should take off and some new clothes behaviors that we should put on. Interestingly, all the examples that Paul uses in this passage, all of them have to do with how we get along with other people. They all have to do with vital relationships. So let, let's take a look at just one, just one change of clothes that Paul recommends. There, there's a behavior here to take off, and there's a behavior to put on. I'm looking at verse 28 of Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read it to you. He says, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Okay, so what's the old clothes behavior that, that Paul wants us to take off? Call it out. Stealing. Okay, now, now, it would be easy for us to dismiss Paul's counsel here if we have too narrow a concept of stealing. Okay, if, if we think of stealing solely in terms of robbing a bank or uh, you know, burglarizing somebody's house, ripping off their big screen TV, we might conclude, well, this verse is obviously not for me. I am no thief. But what if we think of stealing in broader terms? You know, what, what if stealing includes not declaring some of our income when we file our taxes? Oh. What, what if stealing includes plagiarizing somebody else's data when we're writing our term paper? What, what if stealing includes Facebooking on our computer when we're at work and the boss thinks we're actually doing work on our computer? 
What if stealing includes ripping off a person's reputation by slander? What if stealing includes enjoying uh, sexual attention from somebody we're not married to? See, there are all sorts of ways to steal things from other people, to take what doesn't belong to us. This, this is an old clothes behavior that Paul says needs to go. Take it off. Now, now, what news clothes behavior should we put on in its place? Look at the middle of verse 28. Paul says that instead of using our hands to take things from people, we ought to use our hands to do what? Call it out. Work. Do something useful, he says. Serve other people. You know, make some money, the, the last phrase infers, so that you can give generously to people in need. Two chapters earlier in this epistle of Ephesians, Ephesians 2 verse 10, which is kind of the key verse for our community impact ministry, the verse reads like this, Christ followers are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Why did God save you in Jesus? So that you would do good works. You know, many of us, we know how we're saved, but we're not sure about the why. Why did he save us? Why, why is he restoring us to do good works? Now, here's the point I want to draw, drive home. When we are busy doing the right things, such as serving others, we are far less likely to be doing the wrong thing. Now, this is so obvious, I want to say it again. When we're, when we're busy doing the right things, such as serving others, we're far less likely to be doing the wrong thing. So th th this is just a restatement of restoration. Restoration is out with the old, in with the new. Have you ever heard this expression, idle hands are the devil's workshop? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. What, what does that mean? It means if you're not doing something useful with your hands, Satan will find something for you to do. Now there, there's a perfect example of this in the Old Testament story of King David and Bathsheba. You, you may know the story, but you may not know how it begins. Okay, the story that we're familiar with is, you know, David is out on his rooftop patio one evening, and he spots a good-looking neighbor's wife named Bathsheba taking a bath next door, and he calls her over, and they have sex, and she gets pregnant, and now he's got to get rid of her husband, Uriah. It's a mess. But how does the story begin? 2 Samuel, Old Testament, chapter 11, tells how the story begins. The reason David is chilling on his rooftop patio is because he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. His army is off fighting a battle, and in those days, the king, the commander-in-chief, was to be at the head of his army. David wasn't doing what he, he was supposed to be doing, and so he got himself into all sorts of trouble. And that's the way it works. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. When, when, when we've got way too much time to be doing a whole lot of nothing, or we're spending all of our, listen, we're spending all of our free time in recreation and entertainment of ourselves, it's so easy to allow for behaviors that cause us to slide away from God, to undermine the work of restoration that God is doing in our lives. You know, restoration requires out with the old, in with the new. You know, what does that look like? Well, maybe it means out with endless video gaming and in with some serving. I'm not saying anything's wrong with video gaming. I said endless video gaming, but leaving time for serving. It, it may, may mean out with 
four days of golf a week so we could do in with some serving or out with shop till we drop in order to do some serving or out with kids on traveling sports teams all over creation so we could do some serving together as a family. What is crowding out serving time in your life these days? What needs to go in order that you could put your hands to good use? By the way, if you're looking for a place to serve, we got plenty of opportunities at Christ's community, both internally as, a, as well as around the community. Your restoration depends on it. Your becoming more and more and more like Jesus depends on your serving. Serving others is a vital relationship. Four important activities that are part of restoration all having to do with relationships. Number one, restitution. If there's somebody in your life whom you have offended because of your wrongdoing, they're in need of a, an apology from you and some repayment, restitution. You won't make any progress in your walk with God until you get that fixed. Accountability means you've got people in your life who are willing to say hard things to you. You're in a group of people who are holding each other's feet to the fire to walk with Christ. Encouragement. You need to be surrounded by people who are fanning into flames your passion for the Lord. and You need to be regularly in groups, worship groups like this, where your life's being recalibrated and you're encouraged to follow Christ. And then finally serving. You roll up your sleeves. You give your hands something good to do. 